Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Virtual Student Experiences Season 2 webinar. Today's webinar will focus on social justice. You guys are new to our program, Virtual Student Experiences, or VSC, is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. And we at VSC want to be the inspiration for aspiration. Our goal is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. And if you're a student that knows what you want to do in the future, we at VSC want to encourage, allow, and connect with professionals. Through VSC, students are given this chance to decide if their career choice fits their personality, skills, and really overall interests. Through VSC, you guys will be able to hear from a wide variety of guests from a wide variety of seniority levels. And to find out more information about our program, you can visit our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. But before we get started, I just want to let you all know how this is going to work. Firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional, who I'll introduce in a second, a series of base knowledge questions so that you can get a good idea of who he is and really what he does. And if any time you have a question that you think of, feel free to post it in the Q&A module and we'll get to it in the later part of the webinar. We highly recommend that you guys ask questions in this webinar because it's really the opportunity to get an answer right here, right now, instead of reading about it later on the internet. And now quickly introducing our VSC core team of members. We have Beckett, Gabby, Jonathan, Coco, Tommy, and Audrey. And now without further ado, we are very honored today to be hosting Mr. Matthew Lauren. Mr. Lauren began his career as a programs designer for various organizations and has since progressed to become a senior consultant and consulting executive director. He graduated from Tufts University with his bachelor's degree in art and history, and then attended the Harvard Kennedy School, the policy school of Harvard University, where he obtained his master's degree in public administration. Since then, Mr. Lauren has worked for many humanitarian organizations, such as the Institute for Sustainable Agriculture in Nepal. Mr. Lauren also has experience in working in the government sector during his time with the US National Security Council. Some of his other positions include the Programs Director for the NYC Mayor's Commission to the United Nations, the Director of Planning, Research, Evaluation, and Grants for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, and currently he holds a Senior Consultant position where he works with many clients locally such as PBS Hawaii, Kamehameha Schools Bishop Estate, and Hawaii Electric Company. He is an outstanding leader with very extensive knowledge and experience in the local, state, national, and international levels in social advocacy. So we're very happy to have him today. Thank you so much, Mr. Lauren, for joining us. Aloha. Awesome, so just to get started, I mean, social justice is obviously a very huge topic that is becoming a media hot word in today's society, but can you tell us really what social justice is and how someone becomes a social justice advocate? Okay, yeah, social justice is probably the biggest umbrella around issues related to human rights. And there are subs underneath there, racial equity and, and other related issues. But social justice generally is defined, or social justice advocacy is defined really as organized work attempting to influence public attitudes and culture and policies and laws to create a more just society. And just society at the moment really means reflecting, as I said, a more focus on human rights um, and socioeconomic inequities. Uh, protection of social rights, as well as an expression of individual identity. And then how does someone become someone like that? Hmm. Well, really, 
one decides that that's what one's going to do. Uh, there are traditional pathways into social justice. There are established large institutions, opportunities in government and in public, other public organizations to do it. Or you can take the path I did, which is really to create your own way. So I had specific visions around the way in which I thought I could help influence and make the world a better place. And I either created organizations to do that, created opportunities to do that, or positioned myself near people uh, in positions of power or, or with resources in order to create the pathways to make that work possible. That's very interesting. And then can you tell us about where your passion began or your interest began for social justice? Sure. Um, the first moment that I realized I wanted to do good was really, really a very simple mantra. And it was the realization that if everybody in the world picked up a cigarette, but instead of throwing one down, that over time the world would be a better place, which was really setting me down the path of realizing there is no excuse for why the world isn't getting better and better. In my home, for myself and for my family and for my kids, that meant wherever you go, whatever you do, wherever you've been should be better for you having been there and done that. And those two basic constructs of wanting to make things better led me down a path of social justice because really, quite frankly, I couldn't decode how to do good with the notion of go make a lot of money and then do good because you can make a lot of money and die just before you get to do good. Or in the making a lot of money could be all kinds of ways in which you're negatively impacting people. So once you really put on the sensitivities of understanding that everything you do has an impact and you want to take responsibility for that, there are very few pathways you can take that are either net neutral or net positive. Interesting. And then obviously, I mean, social justice advocacy isn't a very common career. So, I mean, as a veteran in this field, were there any special requirements or prerequisites that you need to meet before getting into the field? Well, there are a couple for sure. And they're not institutional prerequisites. They're psychological and personal prerequisites. One is you really have to be self-motivated you have to be willing to think deeper than most of the people around you. You have to be willing to take more responsibility for things than the other people around you. And I think perhaps most importantly, and this is a little ironic, you have to be incredibly selfish because in order to do good, you don't make a lot of money. You very often don't get a lot of feedback. So there has to be something in the act of doing good that makes you feel good. So it is ironically a very selfish activity. I do these things because they, they feed my soul. They make me feel good about myself. I can look at myself in the mirror without necessarily being rewarded in the more traditional ways. So I'd say those are three big prerequisites. <laughs> and then as someone who has experience in the government and private sectors, do you feel like, I guess, going to a name school like Harvard uh, is really necessary? Uh, well, going to a name school is never necessary, but I will say, especially if you plan on coming home after school or if you're staying to a school and you want to be recognized in Hawaii quicker rather than later, a named school certainly helps. Here in the islands, we do have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about that. And if you do have a Yale or a Brown or a Harvard or an MIT or an Ivy League name, against you, it definitely helps. But, but let me just make a caveat to that. I arrived 20 years ago, 
coming straight out of the Clinton White House National Security Council. My office wasn't more than 10 yards from the Oval Office. Did a lot of incredible work at the United Nations. And I was waiting tables for my first year in Hawaii until somebody was willing to speak on my behalf. So yes, it makes a difference, uh, but you also need the bonding capital and you need the local um, social capital in order to move forward as well. Interesting. And then I guess, can you speak to some of the most important lessons that you took away from your education that you still, I guess, use today? I think the single most important one really has to do around this concept of doing good. There is a general precept that you study in school, but you can also kind of intuit called dirty hands. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that. It's a philosophical concept. And basically, if you are in a position of power over someone or in a position where you have undue influence, there's something fundamentally wrong with the situation. So you are involved in a situation that is fundamentally inequitable. So no matter what you do, whether it's giving away money or investing it, you are participating in something that is in and of itself in, in inequity. And whatever you choose to do, you are not doing something else. And as hard as you work, you can never work hard enough. So at the end of the day, if you want to be in the do good business, the social justice business, you also have to accept that you are doing some wrong every time you do something right. And that's really profound, really frustrating, but it's a really important reality. I think it applies to all aspects of life. Every time you choose to do something, you're not doing something else and there's a price for it. But in the context of wanting to do something good, uh, it's particularly profound. And that's the other piece of it, which we wanna be very careful about that you also study in school. Intent in this situation, where what you do has such an immediate and important and sometimes life or death impact on other people who don't have power, um, then quite frankly, intent becomes less and less important. It, you gotta come through. People need to rely on you. You become an important necessary foundation for work to move forward. You can't flake. So this goes back to another requirement for being in this business. It's very hard to take a vacation. <laughs> uh, which is another important lesson to learn. And I don't want this all to sound negative because there are all kinds of wonderful rewards and hopefully I'll get a chance to share some of those wonderful stories that are really empowering about how you can make change. Um, but you also have to realize, and Albert Einstein said something about this as well, be very careful about making your passion your work. If your work is your work, at the end of the day, you're done working, then you can go play violin, you can do the things you love. If you make your passion your work, your work is never done. Um, and that's really complicated because you've never worked hard enough, you've never cheated enough, right? and you hold out this delusion of perfection, which is not a human option. And so I think those are really important things to consider before trying to endeavor to move into a social justice, wearing a social justice hat as, as the concept of a career. That's interesting. And then I guess um, one of your positions was uh, at the U.S. National Security Council. Can you speak about um, some of the responsibilities you held there? Sure, I'd be happy to. That was a very interesting position. For those of you that don't know, uh, within the, the president has a National Security Council, which is made up of about eight or nine people, including the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Homeland Security, and various others. And they all provide the president with national security advice. 
but each of them also has the responsibility to the agency that they lead. So you'll get a slightly different spin from each of them on, on what they think the best policy might be for the president at that time. As a result, in the late 1940s, we established the National Security Council staff at the White House. And those are folks in the national position of the National Security Advisor. And those are folks who give the president direct and we call unfettered advice on how to manage all matters, um, foreign and domestic, that impact on the physical and economic security of American citizens in the American homeland. At the time in which I was there, 1995 to 97, there were about 60 of us. My job specifically was a director in the Directorate for um, Human Rights, Democracy, Human Rights, and Humanitarian Affairs. I reported to the Special Advisor to the President. I reported directly to the National Security Advisor, and I advised the President and the First Lady on the issues in my portfolio. And they included everything from uh, issues of religious freedom. We had a lot of uh, Christian zealots and evangelicals at the time in Saudi Arabia that were being arrested um, and persecuted, and other issues, of course, domestically around that. I was also responsible for all of the countries that were coming out from behind the Iron Curtain that were wanting to be democracies and holding their first elections. And it was my job to determine whether or not those elections were free and fair and how the U.S. could support those types of elections. I had some involvement in humanitarian assistance and the delivery of humanitarian uh, materials in, at the end of Somalia uh, and then in Angola and in Rwanda toward the end of the genocide. I ran something called psychological operations in the Bosnia theater of action. Psychological operations quite simply is trying to create an environment conducive to US troop deployment in areas where we're gonna send US troops. Um, as well as I led our mine action work, which was trying to reduce the number of casualties of civilians based on landmines and about a million other things, trying to get South American and Central American countries to vote with other democracies to break the influence that the former Soviet Union had at the United Nations, uh, working to establish a stronger economic uh, trade collaboration among Southeastern European countries. You have to understand at the National Security Council, you've got about a billion things to cover. The president can only handle a do couple dozen a day. Everything and anything you want to advise the president is written on a one piece of paper or it doesn't get to him. Um, so I would, those are kind of the highlights of the types of things that I was involved in. Interesting. And then uh, can you speak about maybe the most important skills you had to utilize in that position? Okay. Um, thinking fast, <laughs> thinking systemically is really important. And I think that goes back to the issue of social justice. Uh, you, you need to ensure as best as possible that you are taking all different angles and vectors and interests into consideration. When you, uh, when, you make, when you make advice, and it's not only in the immediate and short interest of the country, sometimes it's in the long-term interest, sometimes it's tactical, sometimes uh, it's somewhere in between tactical and strategic. But I'd say the single most important skill is writing and writing fast, and then understanding that if you get called in to brief the president, and this happened to me three or four times, you take all the information you have in the moment, and you're told you need to be in the Oval Office to brief the president in 20 minutes, needs to be briefed on this. You already have a memo that's sort of half driven, half written, excuse me, that you're updating on a regular basis with information as it comes in. You update it. And in between the time that you leave your office and you walk that 
200 feet or 300 feet to the Oval Office to brief the president, more information will have come in. And so understanding that the best advice is always incomplete and always imperfect uh, was a really important lesson and, and set of skills. And the other one, if you're gonna get into government, and this is a really hard one to swallow, is you advise the president or you advise whoever your position of high authority is, they make the decision. And if they make a decision you don't, you don't agree in, you don't get to walk off the job. It's then your job to implement. So you will also find yourself as often as not having to make things happen that you fundamentally don't believe in. And that is probably one of the most difficult and painful aspects of public service. And then speaking about, can you speak a little bit about your time as the programs director for the New York City's Mayor's Commission to the United Nations? <laughs> Uh, that's a little bit easier. That was kind of fun. That office was really, frankly, dealing with parking tickets because UN diplomats at the secretary in New York don't like to pay their parking fines and think they can park anywhere and the city really hates it. And the citizens of New York really, really hate it. So there was a lot of negotiations around getting diplomats to do the right thing and abide by the laws within the city, even if we couldn't hold them criminally responsible. But it was also running the sister city program. New York City had a relationship with about five major cities, including Tokyo. And so a lot of work around cultural exchange, which was really quite exciting. But it was an interesting angle at which, through which to see the United Nations before I actually went into the belly of the beast. Uh, and we ran into things, actually quite disturbing things. At one point in my tenure there, we uncovered a, um, a pornography ring at the Secretariat. And although they were untouchable at the UN Secretariat, it was how the city managed to deal with and uproot those sorts of issues and get other countries to invite back their diplomats. I will say, and this is not a criticism of the UN because I loved my time there and we did a lot of work. As often as not, countries will send their second rate diplomats to the UN. They keep their presidential hopefuls and the relatives, uh, you know, the smartest relatives of the of the fascist regimes, they keep them at home for domestic politics. And so you get the distant cousins, you get the often, not always, often the second rate folks, which is really complicated, quite frankly, to manage in terms of keeping the level of quality up and running at the United Nations. And it's a huge bureaucracy, but that sort of in a nutshell is what we did at the commission. That is not a job I would recommend <laughs> for anybody who's thinking about getting into this work. There are lots more interesting and fun things to do. Uh, that just kind of fell in my lap. And then would that be something like the Office of Hawaiian Affairs? So Office of Hawaiian Affairs, I think, is a much more interesting position. And here's a really good lesson that defines my experience at OHA. I think, since I, I think most of the folks on this call are local, gives a really interesting insight into how public institutions work. When a public organization, public-facing organization, that serves the interests of constituents is really plugged in and really trying hard to do their work. The organization itself, its leadership, its decision-making bodies, they take on the affectations of the constituency they serve. That is to say, you know, everybody on that board now has a voice that represents the constituency and they're passionate about it. So instead of just reading what you read, in the papers about how corrupt OHA may or may not be, or I'd like you to take a step back and really understand that much of what happens at, at OHA is a reflection of the pain and dysfunction um, and suffering that is evident within the Hawaiian population itself. 
Um, and, and that is to some respect, ironically, a good thing that OHA is that plugged in that it feels the pain. Uh, as one of only two Howleys in senior management at OHA at the time, I have to admit it was very complicated to navigate and understand. I think that the difficulties I had around helping to inform the board on how to make good decisions was further complicated by the fact that we only have one board at OHA and it's a cultural board. So often there were things that the board would want to do that are absolutely consistent with the Hawaiian culture that are not possible within the context of uh, the European rules of engagement and sort of the colonial rules that we inherited at state or with other entities in the world. Uh, many folks, Alaskans, for example, one of the, many of the tribal groups in Alaska have two boards. They have a cultural board and then they have a business board. So we often really struggled about entering into business agreements and partnerships and relationships with institutions and organizations that we fundamentally didn't trust and that our constituencies really didn't like because they had been for two generations part of the problem. So navigating that was super, super difficult. But if you want to learn something about how to navigate politics and power, how to get onto a path of social justice, there is probably no better place to start than OHA, simply because they are so exposed, so transparent, so under fire, um, and so deeply vested in the work um, that you can't do anything at OHA without thinking deeply about everything you do about not just its real impact on people, but its perceived impact, um, distribution of funds when you choose to fund one thing, the very real reality that you're not choosing something else, how you manage risk, right? OHA often, this was a big change I tried to make at the Office of Wires, was risk averse because of the nature of the funds they used. And so they tended to fund people that they knew which on the one hand meant you were more likely to have a success with your investment, but over years ended up looking a lot like corruption and favoritism. And it never really was. It was simply, I don't know you. This is a lot of money. Um, and because they're a public institution entrusted with the welfare of people, they are by definition not allowed to take a lot of risk. I could go on a long time about it, but I'll stop there and buddy, let you <laughs> refine any questions you might have about that. Yeah, I guess. Uh just in, in all of your experiences, what would you say um, are your most important skills, the most important skills that you've used in all of your positions from the uh, governmental to the private sectors? Okay. Um, I think the first single most important one um, is empathy. Uh, a, a deep, deep desire and ability to not just feel compassion for someone, uh, but to really be able to identify what they're going through by associating it with a personal experience to get deep insight into what that person is going through. So I'd say empathy is by far the most important skill. Obviously articulation and the ability to speak to and write to and get your point across um, and heard is, is really powerful. And then the last of the triumvirate I would say is leadership. But here I mean spe a specific type of leadership that we refer to as adaptive leadership. And there we make a big distinction and we have to be very careful with how we use words between leadership and authority. Authority is a formal position of power in which you get to make decisions for folks and that's usually referred to as a leadership group. Individual leadership is not a position. Leadership, individual leadership is an act. And if you understand that, then you understand that job one 
is creating both metaphoric and literal places where anyone, regardless of their proximity to power and privilege, is given the opportunity to exercise leadership. If I can give a quick anecdote. So imagine that you are the, the line manager making widgets in a company and you make a thousand widgets a day. And you know this line, you've been running this line for 20 years and you go to your boss and you say, you know, boss, I think we could make five times that many. Now your boss is responsible for a thousand widgets a day. And he says, well, what happens if you're wrong? And you say, well, maybe one day it'll only be 500. He's going to lose his job. It's he's in a position of authority with responsibility. He's going to say no, because it's not worth him to take the risk. because no one expects him to make 5,000. So simply by acting in his position of authority with his responsibility, he's stifling progress. So sometimes that leadership is understanding that maybe he needs to find a way for that voice, that person on the line who doesn't have direct access to higher authority and decision makers. How do you make that connection possible so that, that in this case, a company can make five times as many widgets and be five times um, as effective as they would be if we just maintain the status quo? All of that to say that seeking power and authority is not the same as exercising leadership. And that's a really important lesson to learn because it means that most significant and important social change is made by leadership through influence, not by mandate. Now that's really insightful. Um, thank you for that. And then, My pleasure. I guess, can you tell us what a typical day looked like for you before the pandemic and how that's shifted throughout <laughs> this time? Okay. Um, again, I will say, other than that first, or, that first or second position on my resume at the U.S., the New York City Commission to the U.N., I've never actually had a job, and that's because I don't really fit into a box. So I've had to confront, I think, more rejection than anybody I know. And still to this day, every time I apply for a job, I'm either overqualified or underqualified or not specific enough. So my life has really been a series of Again, that empathy piece also to be understood as situational awareness of understanding how to read situations, how to read the dynamics and position myself in the right place at the right time so that people create work for me to do that exemplifies what I do best. And so it's been a very circuitous route. Uh, depending on when you caught, you caught me, I will have you know at least three or four clients at any one given time and a job will be one will be a white paper for someone who needs to make a decision or needs landscape analysis and understanding of a system so that they can begin to inform something. Another three hours that day might be facilitating a strategic retreat or facilitating a meeting of some kind in order to move a decision forward. Then a couple hours might be actually doing volunteer time somewhere or a nonprofit that I was advising that was in a crunch that needed something. It might be that you're actually there on the food line delivering food so that other people can do something else, but it's something quite grounded and grassroots and involved. And then at the end of the day, it might be reading up on articles like crazy and getting smart and getting prepared for the next day. And to be honest, my COVID experience, other than the fact, frankly, right now that I get to do work, but do it in a tent in the wilderness, as opposed to having to drive 45 minute commute to OHA or I would say that in that sense, my life is very, is very similar. I will admit the economic situation is much more unstable. So unlike the six month or one year engagements or two year engagements that I used to get, 
now it's more 90 days or 120 days. So without the security of a full-time committed job, it means that 30% of my time is spent looking for the next client. Interesting. Um, and I guess just in closing for our questions, could you give some final suggestions or words of wisdom to aspiring social justice advocates? Um, yes, <laughs> please do. If, if there was ever a time at which we needed you, it is now. My generation kind of fell short. We were lulled into the sense that everything was going, quote unquote, the right way. We were enacting all the laws that were passed by President Johnson that were inspired by President Kennedy. We were closing the achievement gap. We were closing the opportunity gap. We were increasing the numbers of people of color and disadvantaged folks in institutions. We were committing million, tens of millions, if not hundreds of million dollars in, in federal and state funding to address the wrongs of the past. And so we really thought that things were moving in the right direction. So many of us retreated from our public and civic engagement, thinking that the, the civic institutions were carrying us forward. And as a result, though I'd like to blame all kinds of other people, we lost our momentum. We never had the courageous conversations around gender and race that we should have had. We mandated racial integration from the top with, you know, with National Guard. We didn't have welcoming communities. We never finished our conversation about immigration and migration rights. So your generation is now stuck having to carry on and pick up a series of deeply profound and important and courageous conversations in a highly polarized world with people losing faith in our public institutions, losing faith in our government. Um, and so even if you're not professionally engaged as a social justice advocate, to the extent to which you can stand up tall and feel good about yourself and tell your kids you did all you could, I would implore you to get involved in social justice and racial and gender equity issues. Because if we don't do it now, it seems clear, and I'm, you're speaking to someone who's been in the very center of government, our republic that we thought was so robust and so strong is much more fragile than we thought it was. Um, and it may not survive in its current form for your children. I can't be more passionate about it than that. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for answering our questions here at BAC. I think we have a couple questions from our audience here. First of which is, how did your beliefs and values play into the advice you provided for the president when you worked at your federal position? That's a great question. Um, the answer is, of course, there's unintentional bias. Of course, you come in with a position. With a position. The job, really, frankly, is to make sure that you align all of the facts and then you reinterpret. And we had a process, frankly, of concurrence within the system to make sure, at least within the senior staff level, that you weren't too biased. So you would write your memo with your position based on all the information that you had. You'd outline sort of the way you were thinking about it. And then you would pass it to at least two colleagues. In my case, I was in a substantive branch. So I was, I was focused, for example, on elections in, um, in Armenia. And I had a colleague who was responsible long-term for the relations between Armenia and the US. If I wrote a paper about something I thought we should do in Armenia, I would have to get concurrence from her or she and I would have to negotiate. So unless you are a, one of maybe 20 people in the, pres in the president's cabinet in, or in around and directly serving the president, 
and anything you write goes through at least two other filters or people before it goes up. So the direct answer is everything I wrote and all the advice I gave was informed by my personal values, but we have systems and protocols and processes to ensure that that doesn't taint the president's decisions. Awesome. And then next question is how do you continue to stay optimistic and motivated when you have to implement policies that you don't personally believe in? Ah, um, well, when we go back to the series of things that you have to have, and I'd say it's particularly prevalent right now, I think one of the challenges we're having in the world today beyond things like fake news and the right is pride. So I'd say the counter to that is humility. The reality that even if you've been doing it for a super long time, even if you think you know everything, frankly, even if you know better, it doesn't mean you're right. And this is going to be really important. And I have a longer story that we won't have time necessarily today for me to share with you. Uh, the concept of something that is right is much more fragile than you think, right? All the facts we have, we never have all the information around a situation. There is always at least one or two pieces of critical information that influence someone's behavior, influence someone's thinking that we don't have access to. So when we try to interpret, even when we give them the benefit of the doubt, um, how we think they were thinking, we're never going to be 100% right. So everything we think we know is an approximation of the truth, not the actual truth. And once you really acknowledge and accept that there is no one absolute construct, then you become a little bit more pliable. And frankly, in these situations where you are trying to drive social change, Sometimes you have to be a little utilitarian. And this goes back to the construct of dirty hands. Sometimes you need to let other people be right because they're the ones that actually have to act. And sometimes you have to change behavior in order to win the war on thought. You're not gonna convince people to give up their deepest thoughts, their underlying principles, the values that drive them every day that have guided them and get them to switch those on a dime times you tend to change a behavior that will ultimately begin to lead them to question what they believe and drive to change so all of that to say you do that because you understand that change at scale takes patience and takes time um, and it is an asymptotic process meaning it's never done it's, con it's a constant and forever activity and then from your years of experience assessing and analyzing international social justice issues what problems do you see arising in our current time? And how do we prevent those from greatly affecting our society? Uh, uh, we don't. I, I'm afraid, again, if you're looking historically and trying to find lessons to learn to apply to the future, one of them is that the pendulum swings, right? Um, and let me just give you a quick historical play. So the founders of this country, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, had ongoing dialogues that if you're ever really, really bored or you might want to explore, they constructed some of the most beautiful organic documents to guide this country that have ever been written, you know, along with the Magna Carta and a few other just seminal, incredible documents, creating a path and a vision for as close to a perfect place as we can have. Here's the problem. In order to get those documents adopted, the people at that time who held property needed assurances that if they signed those documents, they wouldn't all of a sudden be stripped of everything they had 
and have it redistributed to everyone else. So in those moments, that political compromise set us down a path protecting those few people at that time who held land resources from losing their resources, set us down a path that if not self-corrected would lead us to where we are now where 99% of the wealth in the country is concentrated among the 1% of the people because we never self-corrected. So there is no way at this point to not have, I don't want to use the word violent, but I think I have to, a violent interlude. There is serious damage that we have done by not being attentive and not being able to work together that needs to be undone. And it is unclear that the, pe that the people who currently have the power and the resources are going to be willing to give them up without a credible threat which is where grassroots movements akin to Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movements in the 70s become so, so important because so many of those people's power is derived from the people. So when the people stop buying from a company or stop voting for someone or stop, then you begin to have leverage and you can begin to change the patterns and behaviors of institutions of people with power. Um, but we have a lot of work to do. On the international scale, Frankly, at this particular moment, I think most of the countries in our situation that are trying to be democratic are moving away from fascism, that are trying to be socially democratic in, in the non-political ways, are facing similar challenges. In this country in particular, quick detail, right, about 30% of our population has been disenfranchised for three generations. All of the people in the northeast of the country and to some extent into the midwest that were involved in manufacturing that were involved in the steel trade who lost those things when our country decided to make its economy on finance and not manufacturing lost their jobs they've been promised by democrats they've been promised by republicans they've been promised 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 and no one ever delivered they stopped participating we stopped paying attention we stopped surveying them they became totally disillusioned and disengaged and guess what? There's a mathematical concept called a tipping point. There are enough Americans who, in the status quo of the last 30 years, have not been represented, and they hit a boiling point, and now they've gotten involved in violent, violent ways, and we have a lot of work to do to fix that. And the only optimism is, as I said, everybody who picks up a cigarette butt, instead of throwing one down, makes the world a better place. It's not that everybody has to do a lot, but everybody has to do something. Hmm. That, that's really inspiring. Thank you so much for that. And then this next, our next two questions are fairly similar, so I will ask the latter one. Uh, did you participate in any internships or volunteer work in social justice in high school, college, or grad school? Um, and what type of internships or volunteer work would you recommend for someone who's interested in the field of social justice? Well, I'd say at this particular moment, the most important thing, frankly, is to be involved. Um, there are huge, huge opportunities to be involved to make a difference. But not all of those have credit for them. In my case, I found things that I wanted to do. Then I found a willing teacher. <laughs> um, and we navigated a path so that some of those things would end up giving me credit. I think there aren't enough internships, especially in Hawaii. Uh, around social justice, but you, what you do is you go find an organization who is working in that aspect of social justice that interests you, 
because frankly, you, you're going to have to find personal motivation. You're going to have to find the energy and the passion to drive yourself to do this work. So find something that not only interests you philosophically and morally and ethically, but the activity itself gives you some pleasure. That often is in direct services where you have the experience of actually helping someone directly and you have the immediate gratification of a thank you or knowing that you did something for that person. That is a really good building block to start with. If you start super, super big, then you run into, quite frankly, this black hole of, oh my God, this problem is so big, we'll never fix it. So I would encourage you to start small, start hyper-local, find things where you individually can make a difference, where you can leverage your own skills, and then find someone within your learning institutions who's willing to support you in that, to help you navigate and find a way to get academic credit for it. It doesn't matter really what. Its most important value, frankly, is in your college essay um, and how it interprets the lens through which you look through the world and gives you insight into the complexities of helping people um, and helps you in deep, deep reflection about your role and responsibility in the world. The formal piece, frankly, at this point doesn't really matter. And as someone who has gone through his life as other, finding things to do that other people haven't is much more of an advantage in moving forward in this complex world than doing something better than everybody else when a lot of people have done it. And then last question from our audience. Uh, do you think it is possible for someone without a college degree to become employed in the field of social justice? Um, and then have you had nonprofit sponsors of your social justice projects? And if yes, then how would you go about it. speaking that? I love it. Okay, I don't, ever want to be told that I encouraged anyone not to get some post-secondary experience simply because as you move away from your youth, there is a real glass ceiling if you don't have that credential. And I don't think that's going to change in your lifetime, although it may change in your children's lifetime. That said, there has never been a better moment in the last two generations to be a constituent of a, uh, of a group of a demographic that has suffered inequity, regardless of your formal education. If you are a person who can mobilize and move people, who can articulate and give voice and face and heart to the actual inequities themselves, there are huge opportunities, especially in this world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, for you to find yourself at the table with decision makers because it has never been more important than today for decision makers to have a direct path to the pain that the institutions have caused over time. So it's not so much in this case that you have the degree, but it is really critical that you have the reflective practice, the intellectual discipline, and the ability to articulate yourself so that you can go into those rooms and represent yourself and the other people whom you represent in that room um, clearly and with passion. And you can help people with access to power and resources, make good decisions about a help, how to help people like yourself or your family or your community. And there are lots of opportunities coming up. And I can't think, having spent 20 years in philanthropy in Hawaii, at Castle Foundation, at OHA, starting two philanthropies myself with high net worth individuals, there has never been a better moment than now to be applying for grants for grassroots movements that will elevate youth voice, student voice, 
and make sure that you are heard and that you are part of the decision-making process on how philanthropy and government goes about trying to confront the inequities that we, well, we created for ourselves. So I, I am very optimistic. But again, I would not encourage you to do that as a lifelong pursuit. At some point, I would encourage you to go back and get a credential. It doesn't have to be a four-year bachelor's degree. And I wouldn't encourage you to start in art history. It was a long path for me to get from art history into government. Um, and maybe someday, if anybody wants to talk about that, I can talk to you about that path as well. But um, certainly an, an advanced degree of some kind and or a professional certificate of some kind from, from an institution will be important along the way. But today, if you have something important to say, if you have some insight in how to make things better, I'm happy to work with Buddy to make myself available for coaching if you want to write a grant or perhaps to get folks access to program officers in the state who want to hear from community. Um, and I'd be happy to elevate your voice. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, that You're is, so welcome. That's, I think that's about all the uh, questions we have from our audience here today, um, which concludes our session. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to really just talk with us here today, share your knowledge, expertise, and coming from really even the highest levels of government, working, as you said, like 200 feet away from the White House, where the president, um, even where the president works, and just sharing that experience and insight I'm sure it has been really valuable for at least me and as well as the students that joined us here today. And so I just want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, buddy, for giving me the opportunity. I get great pleasure from talking to bright minds and aspiring minds. And again, just as a parting word, we need you guys more than ever before. People my age are not going to do this on their own. So please feel free to share my contact information, buddy, with anybody who has any interest in following up. That's great. Thank you so much for um, talking with us here today.